podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome back to the Rock Chalk Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Mitz. I'm joined tonight, as usual, by my co-host, for uh, Steve, Steve Fetch, and we also have Kyle Davis joining us again tonight. How, how are you guys doing tonight? Hey, good. How are you doing? Pretty good. Hope we have enough to talk about. Oh, my gosh. I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's not like, you know, we had anything major happen. Oh, wait, except for, obviously, the big news is Kansas making it to the Final Four over Duke. Um, probably the most the most delicious part of that is ending the career of Grayson Allen, the the guy that's from Duke that everybody loves to hate. So, um, lots and lots to talk about there. But uh, and and we had tons of questions come in this this time, which is a little bit unusual for us. But you know, the uh, occasion definitely warrants it. So we'll we will make sure to get to all of those. But let's go ahead and get started really really quick. Um, what was your guys' reaction for like the last five minutes of that game? And, and and I guess a little bit before the overtime as well. Like so, like the last minute of regulation, and then all of overtime. How tense? How ridiculous was it? Where you guys were all watching? Uh, so, yeah, I uh, I was just watching it uh, in my apartment alone because I, I turned into a, a bit of an insane person. You uh, too. Especially especially during like big games. Uh, you know, during like regular season games. I mean, whatever. But. Um, so I was I was yelling uh, quite a bit, and uh, I'm really surprised that my voice is uh, okay even now. Um, but but the one thing I, I guess I do remember is um, I had kind of accepted them losing when they were down three. Uh, Duke had the ball obviously on that last shot um, before Spee's three to tie it, and uh, when they when they got the ball down low to to Wendell Carter posting up. Um, you know, he had had a, a really good um, couple of minutes there. And, and so I just kind of was like, well, that's, that's the end of this one. They, you know, did it again. And and uh, then he missed and, and came down and, and he hit the three. And, and I didn't even, it didn't even really like register to me that they tied the game. And then it didn't even really register to me that, that Grayson Allen missed that shot just because I, I totally expected him to make it uh, and, and do to go to the final four. So, it was kind of kind of like no emotion, and then it just started all over in overtime. And and uh, one thing I guess with with these big games when they go into overtime is is uh, they got to make these overtime shorter because it's like you know to go through five more minutes. Uh, I mean, I don't care about the players, but to go through five more minutes of that as a fan is yeah. just, you know ridiculous to to ramp up and oh my god, I got to do this for you know ten more possessions or however many it ends up being and. Uh, that's just uh, that's just rough to go through. So uh, obviously happy that they won, and, and it was you know there was a lot of uh, good yelling after the game, but but yeah during the game it was kind of a mixture of bad yelling and uh, just kind of disbelief. Yeah, what about you, Kyle? Yeah, I don't I don't think you get much more of a of a roller coaster in those last five minutes. I you know everyone obviously phase three was going to go down to, as one of the biggest shots in Kansas history. It's going to be played you know, on the pregame video every game next year. But uh, I more remember two things happened right before that. One was the possession where he had two wide-open looks, 
Silvio grabbed an offensive rebound and kept kicking it out. You felt like Kansas was going to tie the game. It was going to happen at that point. Kept getting chances, kept missing great looks. Uh, you know, at that point, you're kind of flustered, thinking that maybe maybe that's it. And then I just remember how, you know, since you talked about overtime being long, could that uh, review on the out-of-bounds with Silvio t- have taken any longer for the rest? I'm just sitting there on the edge of my seat, and <clears throat> you, we've seen every single angle 17 times. It seemed like it, like four or five minutes had passed before they could make a decision, and at, by the end of it, I'm just like, it looks like it's Kansas ball. I hope it's Kansas ball, but, you know, let's just get this thing going because I don't think I can just sit here and, and look at the refs staring at a uh, monitor for any longer. Yeah, yeah, I think that was really, really crazy to see that. I mean, you know, they had shown it clearly in, like, freeze-framed where it was on the Duke guy's finger um, before it went out of bounds. And, I mean, you know, like, the TV guys had already come up with the, you know, this is the way that they're going to call it to the point where it was taking so long they started second-guessing it. They're like, well, I don't know if it's conclusive enough. It's like, no, you just freeze-framed on it. Like, we all see it there. They just need to hurry up and make the call. That's, I mean, that's, I think, my only complaint about the entire game, and, and I mean, I, I know I was complaining during the game about the refs and everything like that, but, uh, you know, I think that's, that's a little normal just when you have a big game like that. But the fact that the game just completely ground to a halt while they spent that long trying to get that one possession figured out. Now, obviously, it was an extremely important possession, you know, especially when you consider, I believe that was the one where, wasn't that the inbound there, and then uh, they took a quick shot and Devontae got a, a big rebound, or am I mixing games together? That was the one where I believe so they gave it back to Kansas with six seconds on the shot clock, and then we rushed to get a three and missed it. I believe because I remember texting a buddy saying, "Well, at least we ran thir- uh, six more seconds off the clock." I think I think that was the one that Fee like rifled it off the backboard, right. right? So it oh, went basically okay, from like from like fifty six seconds left to fifty, and then it was Duke went down that possession, Kansas got a stop, and then Fee hit the three on the next possession after that. You know, I think I'm mixing it up with the one in the Clemson game. I, well, I think it was the Clemson game where, again, end of the shot clock, they threw it over to Fee, and he kicked out a big uh, a big three that missed, and then Devontae goes up for the rebound over everyone. So uh, You're right, yeah. Yeah, I think that's the one I was mixing it up with. But but regardless, in, in terms of at my house, you know, I, I have uh, – my, my wife and then my kids that were all watching it with me. And, um, you know, we, we, we saw Svee take those two shots where he just completely missed. And, uh, you know, so Duke comes down and gets that uh, and, you know, misses that basket. And then, you know, they, they kick it down to Svee, you know, and, and Devontae kind of getting tripped and like really, you know, hit a lot on that, on that play, but they didn't call the foul. Uh, I, I, I've seen a bunch of other people make the comparison, but it was very reminiscent of the Sharon Collins, the Mario Chalmers play in the national championship back in 2008, uh, where then it got kicked out to the open shooter, you know, who, who hits a huge three there. So um, I, I, you know, he, he went to go shoot it. And I'm like, no, no, no. Cause I wanted him to drive, you know, thinking that they could extend the game and then it goes in and then you're like, yes, but then you realize there's like 25 seconds left. Um, you know, we were all going crazy when he hit it. And then quickly, you know, hushing because Duke got the ball back with so much time left and then going ballistic when the ball, you know, went probably three quarters of the way down and popped back out um, when when uh, Grayson went ahead and took that shot. So it was just absolutely ridiculous, uh, the, the reaction we had there. And then, of course, Malik Newman just completely took over in overtime, and it was just a bunch of celebration. Uh, we, we actually had just gotten a new cat 
And um, unfortunately, we, we probably should have waited until after the tournament because we were all going crazy. It was so loud in the house. The poor cat was hiding under the couch and just, you know, didn't want to come out at all during any of that because everybody was screaming at the top of their lungs. So um, absolute insanity there. So. All right, so before we get into breaking down the Duke game, because I know that's what everyone wants to talk about, let's jump back to the Clemson game really quick. Um, you know, Kansas, obviously, that, that was their first matchup in the what I've dubbed the ACC Invitational Plus One um, region of the NCAA tournament. So was there any, any kind of takeaways from there that you thought either informed what happened against Duke or you think is, is something that we can kind of use as a takeaway for the Final Four coming up? Um, I, I don't know about that. Um, I guess I will say I was encouraged by the fact that, you know, when they were actually trying to play and not just like taking air out of the ball, um, they absolutely killed them, which was uh, really impressive to see. Um, in some ways, you know, Clemson is somewhat similar to, to Villanova, although um, more so kind of in, in personnel versus the way they actually play. Um, so there's probably not uh, a ton to take away from that. It was just kind of, um, nice to see them come out and, and really dominate a team that uh, is probably better than a lot of people uh, gave them credit for. So um, definitely something that probably gave them confidence heading, heading into Sunday's game. Yeah, and I think one of the big things was just to be able to see Udoka a little more confident. You can you could tell that the, the knee while bothering him was more manageable. He was getting a little more lift off of it. And just, you know, to see he only played 25 minutes, but really you don't expect – to play much more than 25 to 30 minutes, you know, even at 100%, whether it's because of fouls or just end-of-game matchups or whatever it is. So I think that was, you know, everyone thought that the long rest would make him feel better, but to see him get, you know, 14 points on 7-9 shooting and grab seven boards was uh, was nice to see. Yeah, I, I had a guy up at work um, who's a big ACC fan. From a, from a school. I'm trying to remember which one he roots for, but it wasn't one of the ones actually playing. You know, he was making a comment about how this, this team was really soft and, you know, how, how are they going to compete when, the, you know, they have a big guy who is, you know, coming off of an injury and not even able to stay on the floor for more than 20 minutes. And, you know, the, the point to that, though, is that if you look at how many minutes that Doak has averaged throughout the year, he averages, I believe it's like 22 minutes a game or something like that, either because of foul trouble um, but but even when he's not in foul trouble, he's normally right in that about 25 minute range. Um, one because we're just rotating guys in, you got to give him rest and everything. But also because you know he's not the only guy that we have for one position down low. So right, the the expectation there is not that he's going to be playing 30 to 35 minutes a game. Um, you know he he definitely looked tired in both of those games, but I think a lot of that had to do with conditioning, um, just coming back off of that injury and trying to rush him back just a little bit. Um, but you know, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't anything that was really too concerning there. The guy, you know, um, Devontae Graham had a decent game there. I say decent. I mean, he, his shooting wasn't really that great, but he had a very well-rounded game: five rebounds, four assists. Um, had three turnovers, was a little bit more than I than I would want. But you know, as we said time after time, Devontae Graham his his contribution isn't showing up as much on the in the box score as you, we've come to expect from, like, the, the senior leader of the team in the last few years. Frank Mason, you know, you saw his contribution really easily when you're just looking over the game stats. Um, Devontae Graham, it gets a little bit underrated, I think, because of that, because most of his contributions don't necessarily come directly in stats. You know, he'll either be 
the guy that makes one pass that sets up the other pass so the other guy gets the assist or really good defensive plays where he cuts off a guy's lane and forces him into someone else so someone else can get a block or a rebound or something like that. Um, you know, his, his stats don't really reflect the impact that he has on games, but undoubtedly he has huge impacts on these games. Yeah, and I would say, I think someone pointed this out, that, you know, one of the reasons that Kansas is continuing to win is because Devontae is very much aware of when his shot is not there. And you've seen in a couple of these games, someone made the point out that, you know, in either the Clemson game or the Seton Hall game, you know, Sharon Collins had a game where he just could not hit a shot to save his life, but he just kept forcing it and took 20 shots against VCU and, you know, it in part led to the downfall. And so I do think Devontae needs to get credit because while, you know, instead of just trying to force his way to shoot out of it um, and end up taking 17 shots so that he can get 15 points, he's very much, you know, comfortable with stepping back, getting everyone else involved, playing that defensive role. And he's, you know, he might not help you in the points like to win a game necessarily, but he's also not going to be the reason you lose because he is trying to play hero ball, uh, which I know when we get to Duke, I think there was a lot of hero ball, especially from Grayson Allen at the end. That's something you're not going to see from Devontae, which kind of goes unnoticed. Yeah, definitely. The only other thing I wanted to kind of point out from that game was kind of just to give props to Clemson's best player, Gabe DeVoe, um, who just absolutely went off, um, you know, kind of similar to that, to that Seton Hall game. Um, the big comeback at the end, was really keyed by one guy just completely lighting it up for the other team. And like like you were saying earlier, Fetch, I think that has more to do with the fact that Kansas just took their foot off the gas because the, the, you know, the result of the game really wasn't in doubt that much at that point. But um, just a fantastic performance from him. Clemson had a really good season, a lot better than I think anyone was, was thinking that they were going to be able to do coming into the year. Um, so and any other final thoughts, guys, about that Clemson game? I'll take that as a no. So let's go ahead and jump into the Duke game. Um, like I mentioned, we have quite a few questions from from Twitter here. So, um, But surprisingly, not nearly as many um, that are specifically related to the Duke game as I thought it would be. So let's go ahead and jump into the, the one that deals specifically with this game um, and, and I think gives us a good starting point. Uh, it came from Nick Rushton at Nick Rush 11 saying, how in the world did we out-rebound the best rebounding team in the country by 15 rebounds while we are supposedly one of the worst rebounding teams in the country? I'm going to go ahead and throw that to you guys right off the bat. So, uh, you know, if anyone has has read anything I've ever written about college basketball um, and anyone else who obviously knows way more about this stuff than I do, but uh, rebounding margin is is obviously not uh, a great stat um, because obviously defensive rebounds are easier to get than offensive rebounds, and so if you're playing a team that you know misses a ton of shots, uh, there's going to be more defensive rebounds available, and, and that's going to inflate your rebounding margin. And, and so is uh, the pace you play. Uh, you know, if you push uh, the pace of play, and and that's just going to widen the uh, rebounding margin some more as well. So. Uh, I like to talk about it uh, in terms of percentages um, because the denominator is a missed shot, and that's the same uh, regardless of how fast you play or how many shots you miss. Um, that being said, yeah, Duke uh, is number one offensive rebounding team uh, in the country coming into this one. 
uh, still are actually. Um, I mean, they're out now, obviously, but uh, rebounding uh, just under 39% uh, of their misses, which is a, a huge amount. Uh, Kansas held them to 25% of their misses, which is like those Iowa State teams with George Niang and stuff that would take a shot and then all sprint back on defense. I mean, that that's kind of what they would do. So um, just to put it into perspective. So just a, a great effort on the glass um, by Kansas. And I think it was, you know, it was a real um, gang effort on uh, Marvin Bagley, who is their top offensive rebounder. But uh, getting Wendell Carter out of there for foul trouble uh, was huge as well. And, and um, just the fact that they were able to um, – Obviously, you know, we can talk about Svi all day. I mean, he was the most important guy on, on Marvin Bagley. But just a, a real good effort, gang rebounding, um, making sure that, that they blocked out. And then on the other end, um, you know, Duke zone leaves them vulnerable to offensive rebounds. So Kansas actually rebounded 43.6% uh, of their misses, which is a, a huge amount. Yeah, um, that's ridiculous. You know, that's getting getting close to to rebounding half your misses. I mean, you can you can miss a lot of shots and still score a lot of points if you can do that. So, um, and, and obviously, I mean, I don't think that's anything special that Kansas did. More so, it's um, just kind of Duke zone left a lot of gaps, and you can sneak in there and get those rebounds. But uh, so the offensive rebounding, while impressive, uh, not as impressive to me as uh, limiting Duke to twenty five percent of their misses, especially considering that's sort of all they kind of had to go on uh, to score for a lot of the game. Kansas made them work for, for tough shots and stuff. So um, the short the short version is, uh, I don't know, the, you know, they, they boxed out well, I guess. Um, but just a, just a really impressive effort uh, on both ends from them. Well, I, I do think that part of that, though, was intentional. I mean, the way that they kind of parked Vic and, and Garrett for a portion of the game, like, like right up there by the free throw line, took a bunch of shots from there. The guys that were down low and in good position to rebound were, were jumping up to try to, you know, deal with those shots, and then guys would sneak in off the wing to go get the rebounds. Um, we took a lot more long-distance shots, uh, which, of course, make the rebounds kind of come out further than you would typically see from those close shots. The other thing, too, is I think there was quite a few opportunities where we tried to, like, lob the ball inside, and it never really connected with the guy that we were supposed to, you know, be connecting with. Um, we were having all kinds of problems with lobs for the first, I would say, probably the first 30 minutes of that game. Um, but but what ended up happening there is instead of that being counted, you know, as a missed shot and then and then Duke getting the rebound, it goes. Uh, I think I believe it went down as a steal or or some other. Uh, yeah, because because Duke had nine steals and they definitely did not actually steal the ball from us nine times. So. Um, you know, I think that kind of skewed it a little bit in terms of rebounding numbers and, and percentages. Um, but really, I think that most of it just has to do with the fact that, you know, we were able to space the floor enough that they weren't able to use their size to overcome uh, the way we were just sneaking in the cracks. Yeah, and I think all those are great points. One thing I would add, too, is uh, to give credit to Kansas' defense is the um, the way that they double-teamed Bagley with one of the guards instead of trying to double with another post and bringing either Devontae or Malik someone down real quick. You could tell that Bagley was very – uh, not necessarily uncomfortable, but he was hesitant. He was either very quick to kick it back out or he wasn't – he just seems like he it got him flustered, especially early. And so that naturally would lead to more of uh, the long-range jump shots that they did kind of uh, rely on the three. I mean, Duke took 29 threes and only hit seven, so there's a lot of big rebounds there. But I think the way – and I think we could probably – we'll talk about this later – 
you know, cause I think this was one of Bill Self's best game plans, uh, and in-game coaching, uh, games that he's had. But I thought the way that he used the double team on Bagley just worked to perfection. Yeah, definitely. So, so yeah, let's, let's, uh, pivot there into kind of talking about Bill Self and his, his coaching moves in this game. You know, I think there, there was a lot of neat stories, I think, to come out of this from, uh, I, I, I forget who it was. I've read so many of them. Um, you know, Bill Self reminding Silvio D'Souza, um, D'Souza, sorry, in, uh, in, in overtime to not let Duvall go to his right, you know, right after he kind of beat him there and then, and then going back to it and, and getting that turnover there. So, um, you know, I mean, kind of stories like that or, or just the, you know, just the overall game plan that they had to, to be doubling in all those instances to really use the four guard lineup to their advantage against the, you know, bigger, longer, taller, um, Duke team. I mean, what were your overall impressions? Was it really that Bill Self outcoached, um, Krzyzewski or was it just that, you know, he happened to put them in good positions and then the guys were able to make plays for him? Um, I, I mean, I think it's tough to always tough to tell um, whether someone out coaches someone else just because you don't really know exactly what they're telling them to do and stuff. You don't know what's coaching and, and what's execution. But um, well, I think one of the missteps that that Shishetsky made was uh, going to that one three one zone every so often. Uh, you know, they they didn't play it a lot this year, uh, it, at least in the games that I watched. And uh, you know, Kansas sees it twice a year with Baylor. Um, and I don't know if he, if Krzyzewski was thinking they were going to go to a zone that maybe Kansas was unfamiliar with or something and not really realizing that they see it so often with Baylor or what, but, um, I thought that that was, uh, a misstep. And then I think kind of the main adjustment, uh, to me that self did that works really well was early in the game. They were, uh, putting a guy in, in that high post area a lot and, uh, just Vic wasn't really making uh, great decisions with the ball, and they weren't really getting a ton of good looks, and they had to take a lot of kind of deep threes and stuff. Unfortunately, a couple of them went in, but um, about midway to, to two-thirds of the way uh, through the first half, um, they changed to kind of vacating the middle of that area and kind of getting the ball on the wing a little bit more and, and having a baseline runner. And uh, that led to a, a couple of wide open um, Malik Newman threes in the corner, um, led to a couple of Vic threes, and, and really kind of opened up the middle of that zone as well. And I think probably helped uh, on the offensive glass as well. So uh, that was a, a couple of the ones that I noticed uh, as far as overall uh, adjustments. And then, you know, you can see a, a ton of um, like set plays that they ran if you go online and just kind of look for recaps of the game. Um, two, two of my favorites were the one where uh, they got called uh, for an offensive foul on this one in the first half where it was Vic stepping up and, and setting a screen for the lob over to DeSosa, um, which was not a foul, but uh, those refs were not great. And then uh, in the second half, they actually did run it where I think I think uh, Vic set the screen for Azubuki, if I remember correctly, but they finally got the, the lob to work. And then there was the one where um, I can't even remember what it was called, to be honest with you, but it was uh, the really nice screen uh, where it got DeSosa uh, open for a layup. And, and again, you'd, you probably just have to Google it. I probably would take me 30 minutes to describe it. But yeah, Bill Self just, I mean, did a really good job of, of drawing stuff up like that and, and that one adjustment that they made to, to get the baseline runner rather than a, a guy in the high post, I think, really opened things up and, and got them a ton of really good looks. 
Yeah, and I will say the you know the the baseline really stuck out to me, but on defense too, I know uh, Mark Titus of the Ringer pointed this out because his whole point was that everyone called this a chess match against from Self and and Coach K, but that Self was the one who was basically dictating what would happen because he went triangle in two once Wendell Carter uh, got into foul trouble came out, and then depending on which big man Coach K put in there. He would either go triangle in two or if Bolden came in, he'd go back to man-to-man, and he just kept constantly shifting the defense. And it seemed like, at least what Titus was pointing out, was that Coach K had just felt like was constantly reacting to what Self was doing, either uh, the defense that, that Self was uh, setting based on the personnel or uh, on the Kansas offensive end, just, you know, either working the baseline or getting those those corners it, to his point, and which, you know, I do think from the defensive side of the ball was interesting that it just seemed like Self knew which defense to call and which was the right defense based on, on Duke's man-to-man. And I do think it helped that Wendell Carter got into foul trouble because that's probably a different game if he plays, you know, 35 minutes instead of 22. But that was uh, an interesting point that he brought up. Yeah, and, and I think really what that game showed is just how important it was for Kansas to be able to play in the Big 12 this year. Because if you look at all the different defensive looks that they've gotten, all the different types of offenses they've had to play to kind of overcome that, you know, Bill Self got a lot of practice putting this team in a bunch of different situations and having a lineup that was flexible enough that could be playing in a lot of those different situations. Um, really, I mean, I think I think what this game ended up coming down to was just the fact that um, – Krzyzewski didn't have nearly as many weapons to be able to employ as many different looks or to be able to cater to what Bill Self was able to put out there. I mean, um, you know, having the faster lineup for Kansas, it was hard for him to go man-to-man because, you know, they were beating him off the dribble when they when they tried. I believe – I thought I saw, like, two possessions where they tried to go man-to-man because it just wasn't working, the, the zone. Um, and, you know, that obviously didn't work for him, so he had to go to that 1-3-1. One, one. Um, you know, so so – a combination of Krzyzewski just not having as many options because of the defensive limitations of the team and Kansas having so many opportunities to see so many different defenses in a, in a very strong big 12 and, and defenses that were executed well. I mean, it's not like, you know, the, the big 12 had a bunch of really good offenses and not that great defenses. I mean, we had some really good defensive teams in the big 12 this year. Um, and so it gave them lots of practice doing a lot of different things with a bunch of different lineups and having the flexibility to run zone, you know, to run man-to-man, to to be able to kind of jump around and do whatever they needed to do. So I think that this game was more about, uh, you know, honestly, I think the game was less about coaching in and of itself and more about Kansas really having a lot more options to go to than people gave them credit for going into the year. Yeah, and I think still like one of the the big takeaways for me was was Silvio's play. Um, I do think that helps a lot because I don't know if you know Duke is not the type of team in a front line that Mitch lines up well <clears throat> for. Excuse me, and I know that people were asking, uh, you know, if Mitch is going to play more in the final four, that sort of thing. You know, Duke's just not a good matchup for him, and so Silvio he still looked like. Uh, uh, three months freshman at times, you know, getting a little excited, throwing the ball into the stands. But I don't think you could ask for much better than 10 rebounds and 26 solid minutes of diving on the floor and playing good defense. And that just gives them, you know, that other, you know, the guards are going to do what they do and they're going to, you know, run and be fast and quick. But having Sylvia there, I thought, was a huge difference in the game, which where, you know, maybe if Mitch is playing those 26 minutes just because of his frame, there might be a different outcome. 
Yeah, and I mean, Silvio made a huge difference. I mean, that was the biggest problem that we had going through the year and why a lot of people thought we were going to have problems even, you know, getting number 14 was, we, you know, the drop-off that we had just from the physicality and the athleticism from Doak to Mitch was was a huge issue for us, especially going up against bigger teams. DeSouza, you know, he had that, that athleticism, but he just didn't really know his role and was able to fill out that role and, you know, run in the right plays and things like that. Um, that's really clicked for him in the last few weeks, and that's made all the difference because DeSouza can, can do some things that even Doak can't do. DeSouza is, you know, he's big and he can – he can make a lot of those, um, you know, strength plays, but he's also, I think, a lot more agile and can get around guys and can do a lot more, um, can get in there for rebounds that don't, it can't necessarily get to as quickly. So it just gives us another another layer, another element that we can use to really get in there and really, you know, find ways to exploit a lot of these um, weaknesses from the other teams that we just couldn't have done if we didn't have DeSoza coming on the way that he did. So. All right. Um, any other specific thoughts about the Duke game? Like anything specifically you guys want to point out, you want to talk about, um, you know, any any celebrations or, or I mean, just just anything related to that that you guys want to talk about? You know, I'm I'm glad that uh, they kept firing it from three, even though they were uh, horrible uh, to start off the game. And, and I kind of thought to myself, you know, here we go again. They get in the elite eight, and they're going to miss a ton of open shots here. And um, you know, they ended up shooting more threes than they did twos. And, and they didn't shoot a ridiculous percentage. I mean, only 36%, but just they they made them at the right times, um, which is huge. Obviously, Spies is the one that is going to get the most ink, but, you know, Newman had uh, a bunch of huge ones. Um, Graham had a couple of early ones that kind of kept them in the game when they were finding their way through the zone and um, – turning it over as much as they were, you know, getting shots off, um, which is probably the, the most surprising thing uh, of the game to me was how often they turn the ball over. But uh, just, just the fact that I think even last year's team and, and certainly teams in the past would have uh, maybe abandoned the three and, and gone into the lane and, and who knows how that would have gone. But for this year's team to, to realize, you know, okay, this is what we're good at, and, and for Bill Self to realize, you know, okay, this is what we're good at, and, and to go ahead and, and keep pressing and, and keep doing it and keep shooting those threes I think was, was huge. And I think uh, the threat of that three opened up the, the middle of the lane a little bit and, and kind of won the game for them. Yeah, definitely. All right, any other final thoughts, Kyle? No, I mean, I think we – we touched on most of it. To that point, I think that, yeah, it seems like it's almost a mindset thing with those three-pointers, too, that this team, they, you know, whether it's Fee missing the two wide-open ones and then just, you know, knowing that with 25 seconds left, he's going to take the shot and it's going to go in this time. It just seems like that's, uh, there's just a mental edge to these guys that they just immediately forget a miss and just, like Fetch said, keep firing. And uh, that will serve them pretty well. Uh, and we'll have to serve them well uh, in the final four against Nova and then whoever they play in the championship game. Yeah, I think it's summed up perfectly by something I never thought I would ever hear, hear Bill Self say. Um, before the Elite Eight game, he he said, you know, we're going to let it fly. <laughs> I, I don't think I, I ever would have, you know, thought that Bill Self would be emphasizing the three so much. But, you know, again, hats off to him for really understanding the way that his team works and, and, you know, letting these guys pretty much do whatever they need to do from three. 
Um, you know, there's a lot of other great coverage out there. If you guys haven't been reading what's coming along in the news and notes on the site, I definitely recommend going out there and finding all the coverage. Unfortunately, we don't have time to talk about all of it. There was a, a couple different things um, that I did want to highlight. There was a, it was like a coach's, uh, I forget what the actual newsletter is called, but um, it, it was linked in today's news and notes, uh, today, today being Tuesday, that uh, it was talking specifically about Bill Self and, you know, how he has increased the, the, the number of three-pointers they take and how that's directly led to market improvements for Kansas. Um, you know, it's, it's a really fascinating piece. It, it makes a good point overall. Um, but there, there's a lot of great coverage like that about this Duke game specifically, about the way that this team has, has continued to improve and, and just how impressive Bill Self has been as a coach this year. So um, I definitely encourage you guys to go ahead and, and catch all of that if, if you haven't already. Real quick, before we move on to the Final Four, um, you know, this this really was a banner year for the Big 12 in the tournament after so many disappointments we've had previously. Uh, I just want to talk for just a minute about, you know, the fact that Kansas or that uh, the the Big 12 had four teams in the Sweet 16. Um, they had two teams in the Elite Eight. You three. Know, and, well, I'm sorry. You're right. Three in the Elite Eight. Wow. I, I keep forgetting about Kansas State for whatever reason. <laughs> um, so does everyone else. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> given the road they had to get there, it's not really that surprising. Um, but. You know, so three in the Elite Eight, which actually was the most of any conference, um, you know, and then having now one in the Final Four as well. So I think this – I mean, it's it's hard to not say that this is the best showing from the Big 12 in a really long time. Is, is there any di- disagreement there? Is there any of those teams, you know, even the ones that got out early, anyone in the, in the Big 12 that really surprised you with their run this year? Well, I think obviously, I mean, K State. Well, it's probably fair fair to say wouldn't given, have, but... yeah, wouldn't have made it that far had had the UMBC loss not happened. But you know, give them credit for for taking advantage and then beating Kentucky, um, shorthanded without Dean Wade. Um, you know, I think I think the other one um, maybe that that didn't uh, you know surprise me a lot, but uh, West Virginia uh, coming up with a, a run to the Sweet 16 there and. Um, even though Villanova ended up winning by, I think, double digits, um, West Virginia kind of had them on the ropes there for a while, and um, maybe if they would have had a, a refing crew that would have let them get away with a couple of their grabs that they like to do. I mean, you never know. They might have made the Elite Eight uh, and had, a, had an all-Big 12 matchup in the Elite Eight. But um, I was really impressed with uh, the way they played and, and the way they kind of kept battling back um, against Villanova and, and yeah, ultimately they fell short, but uh, I still thought that they played pretty well. And then, and then I guess um, if we want to super rewind, I mean, I, I thought Oklahoma, you know, even though they didn't win um, to me, they, they validated themselves that they should have been in the field with the way that they played against Rhode Island. Although to be fair, I don't really look at how a team plays um, as far as whether or not they should have been in. I don't know that coming out and, and getting blasted in my first round would have meant anything to me. But um, just as a, a conference supporter and, and someone who uh, wants the Big 12 to get all those units so that we can uh, raise enough money to fire uh, a certain coach of another sport, uh, I thought that, uh, you know, they, um, I, I'd, they I'd rather the fire the AD well. first, but, you know. Oh, that's, that's fair. Yeah, the AD, I think, is a little bit more important there. I feel like um, we're probably not going to get – uh, credentialed to end to anywhere if anyone listens to the podcast, but um, yeah, we've we've tried that before. Unfortunately, I don't think we're going to get credentialed anyway. Although it's kind of funny because speaking a little shop talk for a minute, um, the KU athletics do not actually like the only requirement they have for you to get credentialed to any of their sports 
is that you are that your site is endorsed by the National Basketball Writers Association. Meaning, if I wanted to send you know a, a photographer to the softball game, we have to as a site be credentialed by the National Basketball Writers Association, which is really really strange. But also tells you just how much basketball runs the show at Kansas. So. Um, yeah, so it's, it's it's actually kind of funny that the school puts it completely out of their hands, to be completely honest, which is a really really weird thing to think about. But anyway, um, yeah, I'm not I'm not really too concerned. If we never actually get credentialed, it won't be the end of the world. While I'd like to be able to get someone up there up close and personal, I mean, if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. Now, back to uh, you know what's what's kind of been going on in in the tournament though, like. The only the only team that I was really disappointed with from the Big Twelve um, would have been honestly TCU and it and in some ways I don't even know it was necessarily their fault you know a team in Syracuse that is just a nightmare matchup for a lot of people because of the style that they play is just so out there um, you know it's it's kind of hard to prepare for them on such short notice and you know I don't think a team like Syracuse should have been in the tournament to begin with even though they made a run to the Sweet Sixteen. Um, they they did not deserve to be into this tournament. You know, they, they, we've we've seen this from them multiple times, and I think that they benefit from the fact that 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 zone they play is just so hard to prepare for on such short notice. Um, you know that that they get into the tournament when they don't really deserve it, but then have a good showing, and a lot of people try to say, oh well, that means that you know really they really were supposed to be here, which I think is a load of crap. So anyone, um, Kyle, since we've kind of been talking over you this entire time uh was, was there anyone from the big 12 that you were either really impressed with or um that was disappointing to you well i think after <clears throat> you know I don't, I don't think anyone was necessarily surprised that texas tech was in the early eight, but i think after it came out after the fact that gene and evans was uh playing with a fractured toe or whatever the oh my God, diagnosis yeah. was i bet you know that team uh gutted out some pretty big wins and he played pretty well Villanova game notwithstanding, but I think that was impressive. And then kind of going back to the point about how the Big 12 regular season just kind of prepared everyone, you know, even if you look at the first round losses, like, you know, TCU was disappointing, uh, but it was a five-point loss where they shot three for 17 from three, and they're a much better three-point shooting team than that. Both Texas and Oklahoma lost in overtime, so you never had a point in this tournament where, you just thought, man, this Big 12 team is just completely getting manhandled. And I think that the the top-to-bottom uh, strength of the league in playing 18-game round-robin, prepared, it, it proved to prepare them well because no one looked overmatched. You know, even Oklahoma did not look overmatched at all. It's Rhode Island and all of them were really close competitive games that came down to the wire. Yeah, no one, no one really got embarrassed in this tournament. Um, you know, the guys that lost early um, – you know, Texas and then Oklahoma and, and TCU were all in very competitive games that, that easily could have, you know, changed on one on one or two factors. I mean, I, I guess you could say that, that Kansas State kind of got embarrassed a little bit against Loyola losing, you know, by 16. But, you know, they were down Dean Wade, their best, their best player by far. They had just come off a really emotional and hard-fought win against a, a decent Kentucky team. So, you know, I mean, I can't really fault them. I wouldn't say that that's embarrassing. It just wasn't the way you really wanted it to end for them. So, and you know, West Virginia, like like Fetch said, you know, losing by double digits, but they were in that game until late. Foul, you know, foul shots really got the margin kind of out of control there. But 
Um, that, that game really came down to the wire too. So it was, it was a really, really good showing by the big 12. And the scary thing is that, you know, depending on who actually decides to leave, we could have better teams next year for most of these squads. Like, um, you know, this, this could be a very stacked big 12 conference again next year. We'll, we'll get into more of that probably in the next few weeks here, but, uh, um, you know, there's definitely brighter, bright days ahead for the, for the big 12. So. Okay, so now obviously we come to the main topic for tonight, um, which is, you know, Kansas is back in the Final Four, finally. You know, their third consecutive trip to the Elite Eight, and they finally made it back to the Final Four for one of them. So before we get into the questions about Villanova, just kind of any thoughts about the Final Four in general. Um, You know, I've seen a lot of people kind of talking about the fact, oh, well, this one's back in San Antonio. Is it, you know, destiny that we're going through Omaha and back to San Antonio again? Um, What's your, I guess, the one, like, storyline either you think is ridiculous or or that you really want to talk about going into this Final Four weekend? Um, I'm I'm not a big uh, storyline guy, but I do think that the potential to – go through Villanova, uh, who obviously uh, beat Kansas in the 2016 Elite Eight, and then uh, Michigan, who beat Kansas in the 2013 uh, Sweet 16, uh, where Kansas really, you know, one of the more underrated, I think, collapses of of Bill Self's tenure that probably I don't think it's, well, I mean, it gets talked about a lot, but maybe not as much as it should be, just given that I don't think that that team was, um, all that great and probably wasn't uh, a championship contender. But uh, the other thing w- with that game that I, I have to mention uh, every time it gets brought up is that there was definitely an illegal screen by Mitch McGarry on that uh, Trey Burke three, or at the very least uh, Kevin Young should have been called for a foul uh, for running him over and that three pointer never should have happened. So uh, Kansas got, uh, if I was a K-State fan, I tell you what, I'd really be uh, raising the uh, conspiracy flag. But I just have to point that out uh, every time it happens. So but I think that's probably, you know, the main storyline from a, a KU perspective that they got a chance to hopefully pull off a, a double revenge here. Yeah, yeah, that was my big uh, – I actually tweeted that um, right after the win, you know, is that it's time to get the revenge train rolling. You're going to go playing against Nova – and then hopefully we can finish it off in the final against Michigan. So, um, Kyle, any uh, any particular storyline you either want to call out or that you uh, want to completely debunk? Well, I think if you're talking about revenge, I feel like Devontae, after the, uh, I don't even want to call it questionable call oh, two years ago, that that's got him fouled out. I feel like that's going to be plenty of motivation anyway. I call that and the travesty. <clears throat> yeah, that, I mean, I, I'm still bitter about that, but um, – more so with Villanova, too. I think it's interesting based on who Kansas has played is that throughout the whole regional, it's, oh, KU's going up against a really strong and physical Seton Hall team that's got good big guys. Oh, they're going up against this uh, you know, amazingly talented front line and Duke. How are they going to match up? How are they going to match up? Villanova's about as uh, much of a mirror image to Kansas in terms of the, like, Four guards, one big. Now, the big matchup is the interesting one because they're completely different players. But I do think, you know, even if I was just looking through sports reference uh, for Villanova and Kansas, and they are pretty remarkably identical. So um, I do think there is an interesting storyline there of after all of the two completely different styles of play matching up during the, the 
second round of the Elite Eight, now you have basically two versions of the same team going to this. Yeah, is it's, it's Sports Reference, is that the one where it like gives you the closest comp of prior teams and everything like that? Uh, or, or is that a different website that I'm thinking that's of? That's a different one. This one basically just breaks down your your the numbers and the ranks nationally for every single team um, and goes through every single year. So, for instance, you can look through, you know, Villanova is um, first in field goals, Kansas is second. Villanova is 112th in offensive rebounding, uh, Kansas is 103rd. They're fourth and fifth in assists. Um, they're within two spots of each other in terms of uh, turnovers. Their, their rebounding numbers are pretty much identical. Three-point numbers are pretty much identical. One of the only main differences is that uh, that Villanova gets to the line a lot more. But, uh, yeah, just looking kind of side-by-side comparison, it's pretty remarkable how similar these teams are. Yeah, yeah. I think there was one of – and I always forget which one I end up looking at. Um, it's uh, – it's, I know which one you're talking about. It's, it's BartTorvik.com, uh, um, his – Ratings system is called T Rank. Uh, it's really good. It's it's you know similar to Ken Palm. I'll I'll spare you the details as far as the differences that they have, um, as far as how he uh, does his efficiency margins and stuff uh, versus Ken Palm. But um, yeah, I, I don't know if you're going to mention it or not. But uh, just to to not bury the lead, the two most similar <laughs> teams to Villanova are, are efficiency wise are 2012 Kentucky, uh, which obviously beat Kansas in the national title game. Uh, and then 2015 Duke, which won the national title. So uh, there's some there's some not very good teams uh, down down the road, and obviously you know that's just uh, stats wise, not personnel wise. But it certainly kind of jumped out at me that those two teams were uh, yeah, but real so quick too comparable. What who are the two biggest comparisons for for Kansas? Um, I can look it up real quick here while you're while you're and, buying me some time. Yeah, I, cool, I, believe, I, thought, I believe one of them was last year Iowa State. Because I thought I had seen somewhere that essentially, like, of the five teams that were closest, like, three of them for this Villanova and Kansas team were the same. Um, And maybe it wasn't there. Maybe it was one of the other ones. And and maybe it was a little bit outdated from, like, a couple weeks ago or something. But, like, you know, that it seemed to point out to me that basically Kansas and Villanova are, with, with the exception of, like, a spot here and there from a particular person, you know, looking at their profile, they're essentially the same teams. It's just Villanova's rated a little bit higher for like official right. and things like that. So I got you. I'm gonna I'm gonna interrupt you and talk over here. Yeah, Kyle's right. Uh, 20, 2017 Iowa State um, is the most comparable. Yeah, I don't know if I like that um, as much now. And then uh, right after that are 2015 Gonzaga, which went to the Elite Eight, and then uh, last year's Duke team, which uh, lost in the the round of 32, but obviously you know was a, a really good team. All season, so probably probably nothing to be too uh, ashamed of. There, there are no Final Four teams on their list, but again, I mean, it's not. I don't think a, a huge um, deal just because it was. Uh, well, uh, well, we've talked so many times about how the tournament's crapshoot anyway. So if you're if you're only looking at tournament results for some of these teams, then uh, yeah, you're probably yeah. So gonna get so you really want to see so. Since the last time that I uh, I looked at this, he added a thing where you can look at similar seeds only. So obviously, um, you know that Iowa State team uh, was a five seed, so it's kind of tough to to really compare them. Um, so if you, if you click that uh, similar seeds only thing, Gonzaga and Duke are still right there. Um, Pittsburgh in 2009, which I 
could not tell you one darn thing about them, uh, but yeah. they made the Elite Eight and were one seed. And then Oregon in 2016, uh, the team that lost to Oklahoma in the Elite Eight. And then uh, you the, the last... That... Wait, oh, oh, I'm sorry, in the Elite Eight. Okay, no, sorry. Yep. And then I, the I was last thinking about Oklahoma made... getting blasted in the Final Four that year. And... Right. For a minute. Uh, by Villanova to, to tie it all back in. And then uh, yeah. the last one, just to make special mention of it, was 2009 Oklahoma, which was the Blake Griffin team. Okay, okay. So... Not not as favorable in terms of the comparisons as I was thinking it was, but still, I mean, you know, we're, we are talking about good teams all the time here, and, and, like, I think more to what Kyle's point was, is that this Villanova and this Kansas team, just rating-wise, is, is coming out as very, very close. Um, I am expecting it to be a very, very competitive game. I am honestly surprised that the line is Villanova at five. Like, Villanova's favored by five points, which I find a little bit surprising, but... Um, you know, it, it seems it seems like Kansas has been not getting very much respect from a lot of people this year. So, I guess I really shouldn't be that surprised. All right, I can see that coming back down to about three and a half by by Saturday, kind of similar to the Duke. Yeah, I think, I like think Friday night is, we're we're going to see most of the movement. I think on Friday night, probably early Saturday morning. Um, yeah, I, I agree too. I mean, I think it's going to be a, a pretty close game, and I think you know, I'm sure we can we can tie some of these uh, Twitter questions into yeah. there too, but. Um, you know, one thing I think, uh, just from, from watching uh, a couple of Villanova games this year and, and watching, um, replays of their games from between Sunday and now is, uh, I think Kansas, uh, has the athleticism edge pretty much, uh, across the board. And now obviously that's not everything. I mean, Kansas has had the athleticism edge before and lost, but, I think some of the stuff that Villanova likes to do offensively, they're not going to be able to get away with as much against Kansas, and I think Kansas is going to have uh, maybe a, a little bit easier of a time scoring against them than, than a couple other teams uh, did, or even you know a couple uh, of Kansas opponents are going to have a little bit easier time scoring uh, against Villanova than those opponents. So that's, I think, one thing maybe to watch for uh, on Saturday. Yeah, and, and I made the rounds listening to a bunch of different KU podcasts today and, and, and yesterday, and you know I think that's kind of the one thing that kind of jumped out is that Kansas and Villanova – both have been beating their opponents the same way, so by exploiting the same sort of things. Um, but those are things, you know, that they themselves can't really be exploited too well on. So, you know, we really are seeing strength for strength. Um, it's really just going to come down to who who is able to execute the best going up against strengths of the other team. So, um, so let's let's go ahead and uh, and kind of tie this in uh, to to one of the questions there. Because obviously we, we've we've already talked about the last time these two teams met with Devontae Graham fouling out and losing, uh, you know, Kansas losing in the Elite Eight. Um, but but Andrew at Bernard Hawk, um, you know, asked, what's the difference between Villanova from two years ago to now, and then the same thing for Kansas. So, you know, I guess I guess really what I'm looking for here is, you know, what is different about this game when we compare it to the game that we had two years ago? That honestly, I think was probably one of the best games of that tournament against two really, really closely matched teams. I'm I'm gonna uh I'm gonna let Kyle answer first on the next one. I'm gonna i I'm gonna steal this one uh because <laughs> the uh the question asker uh is a uh, fellow KU Law twenty thirteen grad uh with oh, me. No. So so I know him so I have to give him a special shout out. Um so <laughs> the first thing that, that obviously jumps out from, from KU side is is the team is quite a bit different. You know, they don't have Harry Ellis there, um, who really improved on on both sides of the floor. You know, I think people don't really realize how good he was. 
um, defensively. Uh, for Villanova, I think the teams are a little bit more similar than um, I've seen people giving them credit for. You know, they still have that uh, four-out, one-in look. Um, their, their big man um, in 2016 uh, was Daniel Ochefu. He was not a shooter um, like Omari Spellman is. He was more of an inside guy. Uh, so that look is a little bit different. But the personnel is, is relatively similar in terms of the things that they like to do. Um, they had a, a good wing scorer, um, good point guard play, uh, who, you know, point guards who could score inside and out, um, you know, wing guys who could shoot the three ball really well and, and drive and score. And um, they took a lot of threes. This team takes a lot of threes. So uh, pretty similar um, on that side of the ball anyway, or, or um, on that side of the matchup. KU's team obviously shooting a lot more threes this year, not as good defensively, um, not as deep. Uh, so we'll, we'll see. Um, I, I think they match up okay. One thing I actually took a look at, so Villanova's offense this year is on pace to be the best uh, single-season year in, in Ken Palm's database. Uh, but uh, if you remember back to that team uh, in 2016, Villanova was just insane their first three games of the tournament. And I actually took a look at their games before they played Kansas. Um, I took out the uh, first round because I, I don't really know that you could glean a lot from a 116 matchup or a 215 matchup, but right. uh, they scored 1.4 points per possession uh, in those two games before Kansas and, and shot 62% from two and uh, 59% from three. And in that elite eight game, uh, they actually scored under a point per possession. So uh, I mean, almost half a point per possession worse uh, in that elite eight game and, and only shot 50% from two and, and 22% from three. So uh, you take a look at the Villanova team uh, this year, they're only scoring, uh, only in quotes, uh, 1.16 points per possession, uh, which is still really good, but obviously a, a far cry from the incendiary pace they were on um, in that uh, 2016 season. So uh, if Kansas can have a, a similar effect, and obviously, I mean, they're not going to get them down to, you know, probably not even under a point per possession, but if they can just limit that offense a little bit, you know, I think Kansas can score enough uh, to where they can win. Um, and, and, you know, Bill Self has done a really good job at, at kind of frustrating those types of offenses before. He's done a good job uh, frustrating Jay Wright offenses specifically. So uh, hopefully he's got, you know, one more uh, trick up his sleeve uh, for this one. Yeah, definitely. Go ahead, Kyle. Well, one thing I was going to say, uh, I mean, that's just spot on about the three-point shooting. I was looking back to in Kansas, the 2015-16 year. Uh, we talked about Bill finally letting it fly. Uh, Kansas didn't even attempt 23s. Uh, so basically from the first game of the Big 12 tournament when they played K-State, they, they shot 7-20. And then since then, it was the Big 12 tournament and the NCAA tournament until that Villanova game. They, they attempted 16, 15, 16, 17, and 9 three-pointer. So it's just, you know, a completely different offensive philosophy between that year and now. Uh, and one other thing I just want to point out about Villanova uh, is that you know, the Big East, while it was a very good league, it wasn't a great defensive league. And you can tell that when Villanova has been gotten, it's not necessarily that they're losing these 67-66 grind tests. I mean, Butler scored 101 on them. Creighton scored 89. Providence scored 76. St. John scored 79. So this this Villanova defense is susceptible to 
uh, a good offensive showing. And I thought that maybe that was going to be like Butler, we remember, hit something like 17 threes in that game. But uh, both, I think, like St. John's and Providence won their games hitting less than 10 threes. So, I mean, there's definitely other ways to get across uh, and beat this Villanova defense. Yeah, yeah. The one thing that I will note that kind of jumps out to me here is that obviously both of these teams are better offensively this year and nowhere near as good as they were uh, defensively. So, you know, that last game ended, uh, it was a, let's see, it was a, it was like a 65 to 57, I believe was the, was the actual uh, final score there, I believe is what it was. I'm, I was just on it and I pulled away from it, but it was, it was a fairly low scoring game, 64 to 64, 59. Yeah. So it was a very, very low scoring game. I'm not expecting the same sort of game this time. Um, both of these teams can shoot from the outside. Both of them are really good at scoring. Um, you know, they're both in the top, the top, uh, let's see, Villanova is the top rated and then Kansas is, is number five in terms of offense. So we have two top five offensive teams. Um, whereas, you know, the last time that they matched up, Villanova again was a was a three or was number three in, in Ken Palm, and then Kansas I believe was rated a ten. So yeah, so they were both top ten last time, but the defenses were a lot better too. So that was a a very very low scoring game. I'm not expecting the same sort of thing. Um, you know, the fact that we're going to have Devontae Graham out looking for revenge this time um, is going to be a lot different. Kansas looks a lot different too with the four guard lineup. They're a lot quicker um, than they were even with guys like Perry Ellis on that team. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think just the identities of these teams are going to be completely different. So while it, it's the same sort of big-time matchup with big-time implications, um, you know, we really are looking at completely different teams. Um, the other thing, too, that, I, that you know, we've, we've kind of talked about all over the place is that Bill Self is a lot better, and, and his teams have performed a lot better in the first game of a weekend as opposed to the second game. And, you know, something obviously that's different here is meeting in the Final Four instead of the Elite Eight. We're going to have a lot more time for these teams to really put together a good game plan, to really come up with what it is that they need to do to, to take advantage of the other team. I, I have to give Bill Self the edge there over Jay Wright, even though they're both phenomenal coaches. Just what we've seen from Bill Self and how, how much better he's been in that first uh, game of the weekend, you know, I, I think that that's kind of a really big edge that a lot of people probably won't be talking about because it's really hard to quantify that specifically. Um, you know, and Villanova is far and away, I think, the best team this year, uh, the way that it's rated. So, you know, I think that those are those are really the main differences that we would see. But, uh, you know, there's there's definitely a lot of good things to be looking forward to if you're a Kansas fan. So, all right, let's go ahead and jump into the next question here. Um, we actually had three, basically three different people ask about this. Um, but I'm going to go with the one that I think is, is the most fun to actually ask the real question. So um, from Brian Bombardier, uh, it's at Brian Bombardier. He says, will Mitch get to play or will he hang out in the martini room? Uh, I think this is probably a better matchup for him. Yeah. Especially since, um, you know, obviously Duke, there's just certain matchups, West Virginia, uh, Duke, Seton Hall is one of those where just Mitch's size and he's more of a finesse guy, just doesn't really translate well. But Villanova is the one team where that seems like it could make some sense for him to get some playing time, especially since I think the most interesting matchup in this game is Amari Spellman against Udoka because, uh, I mean, Spellman is very much a pick-and-pop 
perimeter uh, big guy. He, I mean, he attempts almost four threes a game. So he's going to try and pull Yudoka or whoever's guarding him way out into the perimeter, whereas Doak is very clearly the biggest guy on the floor and is just going to try and, and work him inside. And so I do think there is times where, um, especially when Spellman's in the game and wants to play that perimeter pick-and-pop game where it might make sense to have Mitch in there uh, from a defensive standpoint. Fetch, I'll let you jump in before I do. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I mean, I think this is a, a really good matchup uh, for Mitch. I mean, Spellman is a, a big guy. He's, he's, you know, listed at 255, um, probably, you know, 255 plus a, a few meals at McDonald's uh, in all actuality. So, you know, if he wanted to, he could probably go down and, and overpower Mitch a little bit in the low post. But he's really that's really not his game. Um, he's taken almost as many threes as he has twos on the year. And so... Um, you know, like Kyle said, I think, you know, it's going to be uh, important to have someone who can kind of chase him around a little bit. Uh, and then, you know, Mitch can, can recover and, and get back and protect the rim too uh, when need be. Um, he's obviously a lot better of a, a help defender than he is a, a post defender. So having him coming back and, and protecting the rim and stuff would be uh, useful. So they might do a, a little bit of, um, I don't know that he's going to play, you know, 20 minutes or anything like that, but Certainly there's going to be uh, stretches where he plays, especially if, you know, Spellman is, is going off and hitting a couple of threes. They're going to want someone who can kind of chase him around a little bit more. But, you know, I, I think Silvio can kind of do that uh, as well. Um, he's a, a pretty mobile guy. And, and I actually, you know, I, I actually think uh, Azabuki could, could do it for stretches as well if he had two working knees. Um, obviously he gets winded a little uh, more easily than uh, the other two big men. But, you know, in, in short stretches, I think he's definitely got the foot speed to do it when healthy. But obviously he's not 100% right now. So it's it's going to be mostly Mitch and, and DeSosa doing that. But, yeah, I definitely think that, you know, Mitch is going to be um, called on to, to follow him around on the perimeter. And, and I think the inverse of, you know, what happens on the other end is going to be pretty interesting. I mean, I think they're probably going to try and take advantage of, uh, as a bookie size uh, on the other end. But when he's out, you know, it's, it's going to be interesting to see what they do offensively to maybe create some of those mismatches with Spellman, who even though he's, um, you know, a good a good shooter and stuff, he's not super mobile uh, on the defensive end. So might be able to get, get him in some pick and rolls and, and get him maybe into some foul trouble uh, on Saturday. Yeah, and, and really that's what I was going to say is that, you know, I think um, – we, this actually ties into a couple of other questions that we had, um, specifically talking about like minutes for for the big guys and you know what we're going to do with Spellman. Um, but you know, I really do think that this is kind of an, an instance where I'm actually expecting Lightfoot, DeSouza, and Doke to all have double digit minutes in the game, um, because you know I think Lightfoot is the quickest of the three big men. Is probably going to be the best um, equipped to you know handle guarding Spellman out on the perimeter and then taking advantage of his lack of, of mobility on the, on the, on the defensive side as well. So um, Mitch is going to, going to get into a lot of those sorts of sets and, and really with it, with the pick and roll on offense is probably going to be a huge weapon for him and just his, his ability to, to, you know, handle being, being spread out and hand guarding a big guy out on the perimeter. DeSouza is kind of the the better hybrid of the two. He can be physical inside to overpower Spellman if Spellman is, is guarding him inside. But he's also 
just as quick, I think, and, and it's kind of able to get out there. So I, I do see DeSouza getting a, a bigger role. Doke, I do worry about him getting a little bit winded. Um, but when he's in, he's going to be, you know, be a monster match matchup there. It's going to be really easy, I think, for him to kind of overpower guys down low. Um, so I think we have another situation kind of like that Duke game where for a different reason this time, you know, Bill Self is going to have a lot more options and is going to be able to kind of dictate how things are going. Um, you know, Villanova is going to have a lot of different looks that they're going to have to handle, especially from that one big man. You know, and and unless they're unless they're just really hot from outside and can kind of make it, you know, elementary at that point, um, they're gonna. I think they're gonna have a hard time handling everything that Kansas can actually throw at them. I, like I think that's really the underrated portion of, of of this matchup. You know, even if everything is going perfect for them down for for Kansas down low, though they are definitely dangerous enough that Villanova can still run away with this game. So I'm not saying by any means that you know they have a huge advantage there, but that's definitely one of the one of the areas of the game where Kansas can really um, write the story for themselves. And, and if they can get a big enough advantage there, then it'll take the pressure off a lot of the guards, um, having to guard some of these guys, which leads us perfectly into our next question. It's from Namir Baker at Namir Baker. He says, who guards Brunson, who guards Bridges? And then the last part of his question was if Spellman, you know, um, Spellman being able to draw out Doke on the perimeter, is that canceled out by Doke being able to take Spellman inside? We've already addressed the last part of that question, I think, but um, I'll throw it over to you guys for the first two parts. Who who guards Brunson and who do you think guards Bridges? Um, I don't know and I don't know. <laughs> uh, I, I think I think the uh, you know bit of a cop out answer, but I think it's going to have to be a, a bit of a team effort. You know, one thing that uh, you'll see when I put up my my post about Villanova is that Jalen Brunson's really good at getting down in the low post and, and not only passing out of it, but scoring out of the uh, low post. He is um, over a point per possession on post-ups this year, which is for a, a 6-2 guy, I mean, just incredible. So I don't think that you can have, uh, you know, just one guy guarding him. Um, I do wonder if Svi is going to get a lot of time on him. Our, our newfound defensive stopper, Svi Mikhailuk, um, just because, uh, you know, he, he's 6'8", uh, and again, even though he doesn't have like that great NBA wingspan, I mean, he's got a, a six, seven, six, eight wingspan, which can definitely bother a, a six, two guard, uh, not only when he's in the post, but when he's out on the perimeter and, and wants to take a, an off the dribble three or, or wants to look for a pass into the lane, just having the, the extra wingspan, uh, would be a big help. But then obviously, you know, you look at what you do with bridges and, and then what you do with Dante, uh, DiVincenzo, who has been uh, really good for them in the tournament. Um, you know, Bridges is six seven, DiVincenzo is six five. Maybe you have you know Vic on on Bridges. Uh, maybe you have Newman on DiVincenzo. But then you've got you know who what do you do with with Graham then? You know, so uh, I I don't know. Um, they're probably going to have to just figure it out uh, as best they can, um, alternating between a bunch of different guys and a bunch of different looks because that's really the only way you're going to be able to to slow Villanova down is if you make them take a possession or two to to figure out kind of what defense you're in, who's guarding who, what that means and all that stuff. So um, I, I think just having that kind of novelty is, is going to be the thing that carries the day. But uh, one thing I, I will say, I guess, is that when uh, Phil Booth, uh, who's their, their backup kind of backup point guard and backup shooting guard uh, comes in. And, and I think he actually starts at shooting guard, but he plays less than uh, DiVincenzo, who's their sixth man. Um, when they're both in the game, I, I would expect uh, Graham to be on Booth 
Um, he's certainly not a, a bad player by any means, but he's definitely less a part of the offense than the other guys. And I think Self will probably want to save Graham's legs for the other end of the floor, um, especially because he's kind of struggled a little bit uh, on defense the last couple of games. And um, I think probably is, is just fatigued more than anything else because he's a good defender. But uh, one thing they're probably going to want to watch out for uh, this weekend. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the, that's going to be one of the more interesting things to watch throughout this game is just who you pick on the matchups because, um, you know, like DiVincenzo and Vic seem like they'd make sense to put him on each other. They're both six five guards who have a uh, really good bounce. and uh, But then with Bridges and Brunson, you know, that Villanova is very, you know, with, when you have guys, when you're going against guys like Duke and it, it seems almost like it's, easier to try and play the matchup game and, and, you know, do the whole speed on Bagley and, and trap and, and play fast and similar to what Josh Jackson did to Caleb Swanigan last year in the Sweet 16. But when, when they're so similar, uh, it really is interesting to see how self approaches these matchups. Cause I think there's several answers and I'm not sure what the right one is. It's going to be my cop out. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's um, – I really think there's going to be a lot of rotating around. Like, I'm not seeing anyone get paired up with anyone specifically. I think that's part of what is useful about the four-guard lineup is that we can really switch it around. So, um, all right, we are, we are running really short on time here, so I do want to blast through just these last two really quick. The first one, I'm just going to throw this for a quick answer from you, Fetch, because I, I feel like this one's right up your alley. From, from Johnny Orlansky, at, at Johnny Orlansky, this feels a lot like a Rockets-Warriors game where KU is the Rockets and the Warriors aren't injured. Is that a reasonable comparison? So uh, if, he, if he means in terms of team quality, I think that that's you know, probably fair, although probably flatters uh, KU a, a little bit where you know the, the Warriors and the Rockets are definitely the best two teams in the league, and I don't know that KU is definitely the second-best team in the country, although I do think they're the second-best team left despite being ranked a, a spot lower than Michigan and Ken Palm. But in terms of, of style, I think that uh, actually Villanova would probably be more the Rockets. I mean, the Rockets take about a bazillion threes. Uh, and Villanova is one of the few teams that takes more threes than Kansas. So um, I think that's probably the, uh, the more of a, a stylistic comparison. As far as NBA to Kansas, I mean, you, you didn't ask it, but um, – I don't know. <laughs> you know, I actually, I actually think, and this is uh, talk about flattering to Kansas. I actually think the Spurs uh, is kind of an interesting comparison because they uh, like the Spurs. Kansas can kind of, uh, kind of put pieces together and, and create a, a unit that's greater than uh, the sum of its parts. I mean, I don't know that uh, at the start of the year anyone expected, you know, LeGerald Vic to be a huge part of this offense like he has been. Um, I don't know that, you know, after the start that Malik Newman had that anyone would have uh, expected Kansas to basically be running their offense through him down the stretch of an Elite Eight game. Um, all the stuff that Svi has added to his game, I mean, they can kind of, you know, cobble all these things together. And also, you know, the Spurs are known for being a little bit more of an international team, and uh, KU has three guys who are uh, non-Americans uh, or non-American born on the team, so that's just another comparison so that that would probably be my my nba uh comparison for this one any any quick thoughts on that kyle or are we ready to move on 
Uh, I'll let I'll I'll let defer to the president. Okay. Yeah, yeah. NBA <laughs> college expert. One uh, one thing just to hop on, and I will be, I will be super quick. But for the defense, one thing I was kind of thinking of was you know in the beginning of that Duke game, Duke started out and they played it a lot this year, but especially against Kansas, they started out in like a four-one zone where they really pressed up uh, on the three-point line and and really made Kansas either take super deep threes or kind of these weird, awkward, medium-range twos. And I I do wonder if Kansas might, you know, not full-time, obviously, because I doubt they've done it a lot, uh, either in practice or in games, but maybe for a couple of possessions do that where they they play like a 4-1 zone and just really guard the three-point line. And, you know, Villanova wants to try and drive and and score on Doak inside or something like that, you know, give it a shot. But um, I just think that the, the big key to this game for Kansas is they they can't give up the type of threes that they did against Seton Hall where they just let them step into open three uh, after open three. So anything they can do to to avoid that would be good. All right. So our, our final our final Twitter Q and A. I'm going to limit you guys to a one word answer here. It's uh, from from Benza uh, S at SKC Benza. Um, will Kansas win? Fetch. Or Kyle, you're, you're, yeah, Kyle goes first. Kyle, go ahead. Uh, yes. Fetch. Uh, I'm not. I'm not going to make a, a prediction. So I, I will say. I will say if the same teams that show up last weekend show up this weekend, I think Kansas will win. Yeah, and and I will. Uh, I I will round that out as well by saying yes. I, I do think that Kansas will win. So. Um, all right, so we'll go ahead and leave it there. Just uh, to, to go ahead and finish up here, the last thing that I wanted to mention, you know, we, we have some other things that we definitely want to talk about, um, but we will talk about them next week. Uh, you know, the, the Maui uh, Invitational for 2019, that, that field was announced and Kansas in it. Um, and then the McDonald's All-American game is happening this week. Um, we, we could talk a little bit about, about it, but I think it'd be better to go ahead and wait till next week. We can actually talk about what, what happened as opposed to trying to preview about a bunch of recruits that, to be honest, we probably don't know as much about them as we should to really break that down. So we will wait to talk about that after the fact rather than before, other than to mention the fact that Kansas does have three guys in the game right now, potentially could have a fourth if Romeo Langford decides to come to Kansas. And Sylvia DeSouza probably would have been in the game if he did not come early. So, um, so the, the final thing I wanted to, to finish up with is that, you know, we're, we're sitting here talking about the final four, but Kansas has actually just recently won a national championship. Um, I'm talking about the KU debate team of Karam Robinson and Will Katz. They won the 2018 national debate team, uh, the national debate tournament. Um, they also won the 2018 Copeland award, which is the award that goes to the best rated debate team that earns an at-large bid. So the, the way that the debate tournament works is they take, they take 16 teams before any of the district tournaments um, to qualify into the tournament. They take the best 16 teams and automatically advance into the tournament. And then the Copeland Award goes to the best team of that group of 16 um, every year. So Kansas has won that. That's the second time that uh, a Kansas debate team or a, a Kansas debate team has been recognized as the best in the country prior to the tournament. Um, and this is now the sixth national championship for Kansas debate. Um, there are only two two schools that have more championships than they do now at this point. So um, huge accomplishment for Kansas debate. Um, you know, it's it's kind of funny because debate is like, if, if you look at like the, the Kansas Wikipedia page, or for those of you that have driven by the sign recently, 
you know, the the two things that get called out the most about Kansas are Kansas basketball and then Kansas debate. Um, so it's a huge accomplishment, a wonderful debate program that they have down there. Um, so any, any other final thoughts before you get out of here tonight, guys? Uh, one final thought that I don't know if you saw this when, you know, referencing all the great content that's come out this week, but probably the 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 biggest game on Saturday is happening before um, Kansas tips off, and that is, I don't know if you guys saw this, but apparently uh, Clay Young, the, the team of Clay Young and uh, Stan Cunliffe in Fortnite, it is oh, been right. confirmed, confirmed that whenever they win uh, their their and I'm not a Fortnite player, so I'm going to apologize if I completely screw this up. But basically, if they win uh, as a team on the, the day of the game, then Kansas is undefeated. So uh, I'm sure both Clay and Sam are listening to this. So, guys, no pressure, but, like, we got to get a win on Saturday. Yeah, the one thing I will note about that is that it's not – it doesn't work the other way. If they lose, we're not guaranteed to lose. So – you know, a little bit of the pressure's off, but we really would like that guarantee going in. So, you know, guys, go ahead and win that for us so that we don't have to sweat it out on Saturday. Yeah, uh, I not only am I a Fortnite player, I have been playing for the entire hour we've been recording. <laughs> and, uh, so if, if there's any, you know, F-bombs you have to, to bleep out, you know, that's from me dying. Uh, I am not very good. I have I have one win under my belt, so hopefully the – Hopefully the pressure is is not on me. I think it was on uh, I think it was on Friday, the day of the Clemson game that I won. So hopefully you know I don't have to win on Saturday again to keep it going because we're in trouble. If so, I'm not uh, definitely not going pro in Fortnite. No, yeah, it was, I think I think um, Sam and uh, Clay will will take care of that for us. So thank God. Thank goodness. Right, right. So 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 maybe that means you know next week we have to have a uh, Fortnite minute. There you go. Okay. All right. Well, we'll look forward to that then. <laughs> All right, guys. Um, all right. Well, then we will go ahead and leave it there. Um, obviously, Final Four is a huge accomplishment for for this team. Um, you know, all of you guys out there listening, definitely live it up. This is this is a great time to be a Jayhawk. Um, we will not have another episode prior to the national championship if if we make it there or when we make it there. Um, so instead, we will be back next week wrapping up wrapping up the season one way or another, whether we win a championship or whether we just fall a little bit short. Either way, it's been a great season. It's been great talking to you guys. We look forward to getting to talk to you guys again next week. Um, make sure you do find us on iTunes. Um, subscribe, you know, rate us, give us five stars, give us some good comments. Um, get the word out there so that we can get more people into the podcast. There's a lot of great um, Kansas podcasts out there, but I do think that ours is one of the best. We're covering everything that's out there that you could ever potentially want to know. So, um, definitely go ahead and get our name out there. Um, you, you can contact us at Rock Chalk Talk on Twitter, um, or you can email us uh, rctsbn at gmail.com. That's rockchalktalksbnation at gmail.com. Um, you, you, you can contact any of us personally on Twitter, on the site, by email, any of that stuff. So we, we definitely want to hear from you guys, get your questions in, you know, if you have any ideas for the podcast, anything like that. We, we definitely want to try to improve this any way we can and, and get your guys' input on that. So thank, thank everybody for their questions tonight, whether you got called out on the podcast or not. We did go ahead and pay attention to them. And, and anybody who sent a question in that we talked about is definitely linked in the show notes as well. So um, go ahead and check those out too. So, um, But with that, we will go ahead and uh, catch you guys next time on the Rock Chalk Talk podcast.
Podcast Network.